thankful uh, for them, and they did such a great job. But we are resuming our study in the Gospel of Mark. We've got two more weeks in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is ministering to his small group, to his disciples, uh, primarily, right? He's ministered to the big crowds, but now he's ministering specifically to his disciples. Now, it's not 100% of his ministry and time is not spent doing this, but this is a clear emphasis in this portion of the book of Mark. And so we've talked about how Jesus has given his disciples a glimpse into who he is, right? They, they, they got a glimpse into the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that is the foundation that everything that they do comes from. Who Christ is motivates who we are in him. Right, And so they see Christ in his glorified body. Uh, it provides the foundation for their obedience of being a follower of Christ. Um, we detailed the faith that is required, the intentional uh, faith that is required for us to live a godly Christian life. It's not going to be by sight. Right? It's not going to be things that we see. It's not going to make sense all the time. But that God has called us to be people of faith. So much so that James would say later that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so leads us to the question, how much of our time this week has been spent doing things in faith or doing things that are very carefully planned and meticulously thought out. What are we doing in our life that is motivated by faith in a God that if we, he doesn't show up, then we are sunk. But as he details these things to his disciples, he begins to talk about, as we'll see today, the company that the disciples should keep. This kingdom of heaven is different. In fact, it's completely opposite to the kingdom of this world. And so as such, there's an association that his followers will have. There is a fellowship that his followers will have that is alien and different than what we might suppose it to be. And so today we're going to look at the fellowship of a follower. The fellowship of a follower. Turning your Bible to Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 13. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus has spoken to, he's been speaking to the Pharisees, answering questions, fielding questions. These guys were trying to trick him. They were trying to catch him in, uh, in contradictions. They were trying to get him, uh, to trap him into saying things that would undermine his authority and undermine his followership. Right? And so Jesus is talking to these high rollers, these very important people in the day. The Pharisees were those that if you wanted anything done, these were the people that you talked to. When I came and, and started, we started Lindsay Lane North, I learned very quickly names of certain key people in the community of Elkmont I needed to know and get on my side. Right? They were the movers and the shakers, right? Jesus was talking to these people and a very strange crowd of people showed up. Let's look first at the rejects. The rejects, Mark 10, 13 through 14. Jesus is just got, is, is speaking in mid-sermon to the Pharisees, and look who shows up. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What was his disciples doing? Jesus is talking to the important people. Man, if we are to get this movement off the ground, Jesus is going to have to get some sway with these folks. He's going to have to convince these folks, the power players, the power brokers in Israel, he's got to win them to inside. Hey, these children are not on the agenda. How many of you are planners in the room? You like to make a plan. You like to, you like to stick to that plan. And when your plan explodes, so do you, right? Right? Like you got a plan and you stick to the plan. Well, these kids showing up was not on the docket for the day for the Messiah. Jesus has to talk to these powerful people and these people of zero significance, they need to wait their turn. You see, I talked two weeks ago that the, in Aramaic, the word for child and the word for servant was identical. It's the same word. And the reason is, is because the child was seen as the most insignificant thing, as insignificant and had about as much say as a servant in the affairs of life. You don't want, you don't need to win a whole bunch of toddlers to your side in order to be important, right? Now, you can win some sway with some parents, but it, you, you don't need to win a bunch of kids in order to be a powerful person. You need to spend time with the Pharisees, with the Sanhedrin, with the high council, not these insignificant kids. Jesus was in the middle of teaching his disciples as well as the elite of his day, um, and in walks a bunch of mamas and their youngins. Right? A bunch of toddlers, according to, to what we believe this word to be translated, babies, toddlers. Like not even what we see in all the precious moments of Bibles that we have from days gone by, right? Where Jesus is sitting there with, you know, eight and nine and ten year olds. We're talking about toddlers. We're talking about babies. We're talking about people that can't even say anything positive about him because they're babies, right? And Jesus pauses everything. In his sermon to the significant people of the day, and he makes intentional time for these children. He begins to associate with the lowly rather than the mighty. What we see in this is that this is something that Jesus does often. This is a theme of his ministry. This was not a flyer. It was not an outlier to the way Jesus normally did things. Jesus intentionally spent time with the outcast, with the sinner, with the tax collector. He intentionally went to those who were disenfranchised, those that were out on the outside looking in to society. Jesus associated with those that could not advance him instead of cozying up to those that could bring glory to his name. Right? This was something that happened all of the time. For the kingdom of heaven would not be about associating with those with power, but associating with those who had none. You know, there's a lot that can be said about the company that we keep. 
and I'm going to take my pastor hat off and I'll put on my youth pastor cap for a second. It's a much cooler cap, I assure you. Um, very relevant and hip, all right? But I think using the word hip probably means that it's not as hip. But regardless, uh, I'm going to talk to some of you teenagers for a second. Now, I'm talking to your parents too, but I remember, I, I remember talking to students about the company that they keep. The bottom line is, you look around who you hang out with, who you spend the time with, what your squad looks like, and you will either be to tell me exactly who you are or very soon who you will be. The company that you keep affects who you are. Uh, bad company corrupts good habits. That's what Proverbs says, right? And so we need to give careful attention to who we spend our time with. Now, you cynical and uh, smart aleck teenagers would respond, well, yeah, Alan, but you just said Jesus hung out with the tax collectors and the sinners, to which I would respond, thank you for listening. That is great. That's exactly right. But the reason Jesus hung out with the tax collectors and the sinners is a very different reason than we hang out with a lot of the people in the world that we live in today. You see, Jesus didn't hang out with the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and the outcasts of society because he wanted a taste of the lifestyle that they had to offer. That's not why Jesus hung out with them. When we hang out with those people, we as, as Christians, right, as good people, we want just a taste. We may not try to live the lifestyle, but we want just a taste of the crazy that their life is. There's an appeal to that. There's a draw to that. And we want some of what they have. The reason Jesus hung out with the lost, the, Jesus hung out with the wrong crowd. Can we just say that? He hung out with the wrong crowd. But he hung out with the wrong crowd for the right reasons. The problem is we ain't hanging out with the wrong crowd for the right reasons. Jesus hung out with them not so that he could get a taste of the life that they had to offer. But so that they could taste the life that he had to offer. If you want a test of how well you're doing in that, ask yourself this question. Do you look more like the wrong crowd or does the wrong crowd look more like you? We are light and salt. So that requires that we are around the wrong crowd, right? We are providing flavor to, to saltless, to flavorless world. But I'll say this too. This is students, parents alike. If you're going to have the wrong friends for the right reasons then by necessity, you will have the right friends closer. Jesus didn't just hang out with the tax collectors in the center. What, what are we studying? What is Jesus doing? He is investing in a small group of disciples. Now, yeah, I get he's the son of God, right? Like, who's going to hold accountable Jesus? He shouldn't have done that. Because that never happened, right? But Jesus had a small group that was an encouragement to him, that would walk with him, that would encourage him. And so if we are going to intentionally win the lost, we're going to do it through a closer association with those that will encourage us that direction. And they'll be the ones to say, hey, it seems to me like you're hanging out with those friends, those people, for the wrong reasons. It may have started as I'm trying to reach them, but it has morphed. And now you look a lot like they do. It's accountability. 
Right? And so we can have the wrong friends for the right reasons. But if we're going to have the wrong friends for the right reasons, we need to understand that we need people that are going to keep us accountable to do that. We should have those friends. Jesus associated with the lowly, those that need them. Because it doesn't just tell us about who we are. It tells us about what's important to us. And the other thing that we can do is in the church world, we can insulate ourselves from the world. We can completely cast ourselves into irrelevance because the only people that we ever spend time with are those that speak in the King James language. Right? What good am I doing to the world if I'm not engaging with the lost? Jesus engaged the lowly. Why? Not because he needed them, but because they needed him. It speaks to the mission of the kingdom of God. Why did Jesus stop talking to those that were important so that he could talk to those that were unimportant? Because those that were unimportant needed him. They were reliant on him. They recognized their brokenness and Jesus embraced them. Look, to the, look at the response. Right? Jesus was indignant to his side. By the way, that's the only time in the New Testament that word is used. It's translated indignant here, but that's the only time this Greek word is used. He was literally provoked to anger. The, the word to vent. He was venting to his disciples. Let me tell you guys, this is a problem I have with you right now. You are not seeing things the way that God has called us to see things. You are not acting like you are followers of the kingdom of heaven. If you were... You wouldn't have stopped the children because you recognized that the children needed me. And these Pharisees felt like they didn't. Felt like they could do it on their own strength. But these mamas, these little babies, these are what the kingdom of heaven is to be like. No one is less likely to rise you to power than a small child. But that small child is in complete dependence on you to provide for them. And this is the point that Jesus is making. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, who does not, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and he blessed them laying hands on them. The moms brought their kids because they wanted the rabbinical traditional blessing that the rabbi would lay their hands on the head of the child and they wouldn't quote some scripture over them some old testament passage and then be blessed and filled and be on your way but what jesus offered these kids not just not not only did he interrupt everything he was doing in that day not only did he do that but he went out of his way not just to bless them but to embrace them he made them an example for all that were around. If you are to be with me, you will be more like these helpless children and less like these people that you think have it all together. You, people will recognize you for your neediness of me rather than your strength to provide for yourself. This is what the kingdom of heaven Look like so he interrupted everything, he interrupted his plan, he interrupted his schedule. But then he met these children with intimacy. You see, because humility with God is always met with intimacy with God. 
Humility before God is always met with intimacy with God. God resisteth the proud. That's King James, by the way. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we are proud, uh, humble yourself under the almighty hand of God. Like you get the idea of hand coming down to smash a bug, right? Like humble yourself under the almighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Our recognition of our neediness for him is the key identifier that we are in him. It's the recognition that we can't do it on our own. So our schedule, our plans, our agenda must be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And when we approach God and our life with that humility, we are met with intimacy. As Jesus held the children close, those that recognize their dependency on God, he holds close as well. Secondly, let's look at the ruler. So the children walk in, disrupt everything. The agenda's, you know, gone. It's, it's shot. You know, the disciples are aggravated and frazzled. But here comes somebody that can turn it all around. The ruler, the rich young ruler. We know that he's rich because it tells us that he had plenty. We know that he's young because Matthew tells us he was young. We know that he was a ruler because Luke tells us he's a ruler. Now Mark just tells us he was a man. But this is the rich, young ruler. And when you're looking for power, you need to find people that are rich. You need to find people that have health and wealth. And you need to find people that have reputation. So, yeah, our agenda is shot today. But here comes somebody that can fix it all. Look at verse 17. And he was sitting on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get on the kingdom of God bandwagon? How do I get on this team? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Well, this man is rich, he's young, he's a ruler, but he's about to tell us something that's even more impressive about him. He said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now, he's not saying he's perfect, okay? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is I have adhered to all the law as best as I could my whole life. This man was righteous. He didn't just have a reputation for having power and fame. He had a reputation for being godly, for being righteous, for, for doing the right things. I mean, this guy was the total package. Obviously, we need this guy. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Please don't gloss over that. If you gloss over that, you think what he says next is tongue-in-cheek. You think what he, what, he, what he says next is just a way to trap him. And that Jesus is almost cynical in his response. But recognize that Jesus loved him. He was moved by compassion on this man. And he is about to offer something to this man that he only offered to 12 other people. 
The command is almost identical when you, when you look at the response that the disciples had to his calling of them. The, what he's asking this young, rich, young ruler to do is identical to what he asked of his disciples. This is a genuine call to ministry. This is a genuine call to be his disciple. He loved him. And look what he said. You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. What's he saying? What's he saying? Follow me. What did his disciples? Remember James and John? Hey, boys. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They're ditching pops. They're ditching their nets. Their catch for that day, the boat. They're leaving families. They're leaving everything and they follow Jesus. Without question, without reservation. At the call of God to follow him, they abandoned everything and followed him. What is Jesus asking this young man to do? In love, he is asking him to do the same thing. I recognize you're rich. I recognize you're young. I recognize you're a ruler. But the one thing you lack is you need to give it all up and you need to follow me as Lord. You need to follow me. I believe if he had responded differently, I believe we're reading a story about a man who became the 13th disciple. Now, that's unlucky and all that, but I really believe that to be the case. I believe this was a genuine call of God. Why? Based upon his love that he had for him. He recognized this man was on the right track. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. I wonder if any of the disciples like ran to him like, hey man, what are you doing? No, no, come back, come back. We did it, it ain't no big deal. Just come on, just give it all up. Just come on, follow me. Like, we need people like you on our team, right? We don't know. But he went away sad. The same Jesus that the blind would encounter and have sight, the same Jesus that the leper would encounter and be cleansed, the same Jesus who the dead would encounter and would be brought back to life, the rich young ruler, because there was one thing that he lacked, went away sad from the presence of Jesus. He is the only person we have in Scripture that went away worse than they were before they had met Jesus. Why? One thing you lack. Please don't mistake it. Don't mix it. The one thing he lacked was not all of the stuff that he had to give up. The one thing that he lacked was recognizing that all that he had was the Lord's. And the fact that he had so much, he was not a man that controlled his wealth. He was a man that whose wealth controlled him. It was not his possessions. It was his idolatry. Here's what the man was looking for. My wife is a list maker. List makers in the room, to-do lists. Yep, not me. I am a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of guy. And that's how I'm always going to live. And it drives my wife bonkers. Bonkers. 
Because I just think flexibility is fun. Spontaneity is exciting, right? Uh, to give you an idea, those are the number of pages that she used to plan for Alaska. All right? Uh, so page after page after page after page. Okay, you get the picture, right? A ton of planning. This is the plan for the week now that she has returned from Alaska. I think it's a little disorganized, but this is how she does it. And she has made a list of all the things that she must accomplish in this week. Let me tell you what this driven young ruler would. He was probably like, this is nothing wrong with these lists, obviously. Right? We need to be industrious. We need to get things done. I should probably take a page from her book. Uh, but... The rich young ruler was coming with his to-do list. Man, I've got to manage these people. I've got to manage this wealth. Man, I need to accomplish this business. Here's Jesus. Let me run up to him and let him give me one thing that I can do in order to get on this kingdom of God train. Give me something. Well, y'all, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's a person in this room that's looking for another thing to do. I don't care how busy you think you are or you actually are. Right? Nobody's looking for another thing to do. He's looking for a bullet point. Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? What can I add to my already very busy schedule? What can I do in order to receive eternal life? And Jesus said, man, there's one thing that you lack. Why don't you give me the list? When we start treating God like he is something that we do in a busy day, he is one thing in a list of things that we do. We miss the kingdom of heaven. Because it is not our quiet time. I need to make sure I do my quiet time. I need to make sure I pray. I need to make sure I... Uh, I talk to somebody about Jesus. I need to make sure that I meet with an accountability group. I need to make sure I go to a small group. I need to make sure, you know, tribe huddle, whatever. It's not... Those things. Maybe the one thing we lack is saying, God, you can have it all. I submit everything to you. You know what a child doesn't have? A child doesn't have a schedule. Man, a baby, they, they, they're, they're just, they're, it's wide open. For them, right? They're completely dependent on the one that is over them to provide all of that for them. This is the posture of a follower of Christ. God, there's a lot of things that I have planned, but all of that ultimately needs to be submitted to your lordship. And I'm going to get my direction and my schedule and my bearing from you rather than what I believe and perceive to be most important in my life. James Edwards says, the call to follow Jesus does not constitute an additional obligation in life. But rather, it judges, replaces, and subordinates all obligations and allegiances to the one who says, follow me. God, I've got a plan, but all of that is submitted to you. So, following Jesus is not a calling of your life. It's not a calling of your life, but rather it is the calling of your life. It is not something that you do as a side hustle to your career. Jesus is not a side hustle. 
Jesus is all in all. He is everything. And in fact, all that we do, once we understand this, all that we do is an act of worship. Because it's all given to him. But there's things that we chase. This man, the one thing that he liked, he had this idolatry in his life. There are some things that we chase. And listen, those things are not bad things. In fact, they make really good servants. What it is, is they make very terrible masters. Someone said one time that what you can't give up doesn't control, you don't control, it controls you. If you can't give it up, it controls you. Listen, wealth is a great thing. Wealth provides a way for us to see people come to Christ in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, to come to Christ in Vegas, to come to Christ in Elkmont, Alabama, right? Wealth is a great thing. It's a resource. It's a tool. It's a great servant. But Matthew 6, 24 is clear that you can't serve God in money. When it becomes your master, it becomes an idol. Reputation is great to have. A good reputation. My dad gave me his name. It is a great reputation. Lon Ostrisky is a very good name to have as my dad. Right? Uh, when you're selecting leaders in your church, deacons, elders, overseers, those kind of things, it says in there that they are to be well thought of in the community. What's it talking about? Reputation. They are to be well thought of in the community. A reputation is important. It's how we gain access to people to get them Jesus. But what did Acts 5.29, the disciples tell the Sanhedrin, we are going to obey God, not man. So my reputation and what people think of me is not going to determine my actions. But what is surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? That determines what we do. Our family, our family is an incredible resource we've been entrusted with as a steward of. If Deuteronomy is correct, it is the, the impetus, it is the starting point of evangelism in the home, sharing Christ with those closest to us. Our family is a amazing, amazing things that can be put to great service for God. But yet Luke 14 would tell us if you do not hate your father and your mother, your wife, your children, your, even your own self, you cannot be my disciple. At the point that family gets in the way of obedience to God, it becomes an idol. This one thing you lack, it's not riches. It's anything that takes the throne of our life. Well-being and security, health is important. We need, uh, Timothy tells Timothy that, that bodily exercise profits some, right? That it has some profit. We need to take care of the temple that we've been given. We need to try to live uh, Financially secure, have well-being and security. But Luke 9, 24 tells us if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. So if you make your whole life about what's next and, 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 and developing this nest egg or whatever it is that we're doing or being this, this, the epitome of fitness and you make it, you can make it an idol. And if you would seek to save your life, you'll lose it. All of these things, when they become controlling things, they become bad things. They're excellent servants, but they're terrible masters. The only thing worth following and worth surrendering 
ourselves to lordship to is Christ. Following Jesus is not the calling of your life, but rather the calling of your life. Let's look thirdly at the reward. Mark 10, verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? If this rich young ruler, they probably had come back from trying to win him back, right? They came back and they're just exasperated. Then Jesus, who can be saved? If this rich young ruler can be saved, then what in the world, what chance do we have? And Jesus said, with man it is impossible. He did not say with a rich man it is impossible. He said with, a, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. He is not just talking about the lostness of rich folks. He's talking about the lostness of all folks. He's talking about the fact that man can't save themselves. And so who can be saved? The answer, nobody, if man is the only contribution. No one. Riches can't save you. Family can't save you. Health can't save you. A future can't save you. None of those things can save you. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible through him. We are to adopt the posture of this small child. Dependent to receive all of our cues from a father who loves us. And we are to look a lot less like those that come with all of our agenda and all of our baggage and we treat God like he is a side hustle in the road of life. This is the teaching. We are to fellowship. It's to show, it shows our mission. We are to associate with the lowly so that we can win the lowly. We are to place ourselves below others. And listen where he comes. This is the culmination of everything, 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, okay, okay, great. Because look here. See, I've left everything. I've left it all. My wife's kind of mad at me at the house. I've left them all, right? I've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. He's saying, you are right. You've sacrificed a lot. But your sacrifice will never be greater than your reward. We have that assurance as God's people. To give up all is to receive everything. To receive everything. To give up of ourself is to receive everything God has for us. And the principle is this. He can do more with you than you can. He can do more with you than you can. He can do more with your effort and energy. Although their sacrifice is real, so will their rewards be. Yes, It'll be through persecution. He says it there, with persecutions, right? You will be blessed, but there will be persecution. There will be struggle in this life. It doesn't, it, it, there will be blessing, 
right? You'll receive a hundredfold in this life, and in the life to come, you'll receive eternal life. But we don't just do it for an eternal gift. Man, there are physical, there are temporary ramifications as well. There's abundant life even here, right? But if we would respond, those that would give up all receive their life back and life even more abundantly in Christ. And so the principle is this. Christ can do more with me than I can do with me. Christ can do more with my resources than I can do with my resources. I can hoard them and I can accomplish very ordinary things or I can give them up and see the extraordinary happen. God can do more with my time than I can do with my time. Why would I give myself wholly to a schedule when God who created time, who dictates time, could not be far more superior to accomplish He can do more with my energy than I can do with my energy. You know what? I've spent a whole week in vacation. I've spent a whole whole week. Blast. Good time. I'd love to tell you right now, I stand before you rested. I do not. You know why? Because we spent an entire day at the ball field with my kid yesterday. Right? My energy is fleeting. Right? I will go from being super relaxed to having a red eye flight back home and being super exhausted. Right? To spending all day on a Saturday, uh, 15 hours or so at the ball field, and I am dead tired. Getting home at 12 o'clock at night, like I am tired. My energy is fleeting, but his is not. And so he can accomplish more with my energy than, he, than I can. He can do more with my family than I can do. I mean, some of us need to stop trying to fix everything in our family and our own power, and maybe we need to give it to the Lord. Maybe we need to let him do his work. And in the meantime, he provide us with contentment. He can do more than we can if we would surrender it to him. That requires humility, but the great thing is, is humility is met with intimacy. You respond with humility to God. You give him yourself. You offer your schedule. You lay it before him, and he responds with himself. The only thing that can provide joy and contentment. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? So we enter this time of invitation. You can believe it or not. The rich young ruler sure didn't. The rich young ruler thought he was getting a bum deal. No, I'm not giving up everything I have. And in so doing, he missed eternity. He missed wealth and riches beyond measure. Now, the Christian life isn't always easy. In fact, according to Christ, the first shall be last and the last first. Meaning that those that appear to have it all together and trust in their own strength that of time will be last. Those that would humbly put themselves lower than others, that would submit themselves to the Lord, though it seems to be taking a backseat, those shall be exalted in heaven. This is the fellowship of a follower. Alien to this world, but man, and true in the kingdom of God. Maybe you need to respond to that. Maybe you need to respond for the first time surrendering your life to Jesus. Maybe you feel 
God tugging at your heart, the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart that you need to respond. You need to give him everything. Maybe God has been a side hustle in your life. Maybe you need to make him all in all. All encompassing, everything you need to submit to his lordship. My friend, that's salvation. Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you. He initiated his love to you. And if you would respond in faith to what he's done, you would surrender yourself to him, then you can have life eternal. Life abundant in this life and life eternal in the life to come. That's up to you. And it's going to require letting go. Letting go of your plans, letting go of your ambition, letting go of whatever it is that you've clung so tightly to. If you desire to do that, I want to give you an opportunity. We're going to have a time of invitation in just a moment. We're going to sing. I'm going to say amen. We're going to sing. You have the opportunity to come find this center aisle. Talk to me. I would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Experiencing abundant and eternal life. Maybe for the first time. So if you're here and you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, your response is clear. Maybe you need to lay down. Some, maybe you know you got a relationship with Christ. Maybe you need to lay down some things that have taken ruling roles in your life. Maybe you need to come and make this, make this your altar here at the front and lay some things down before the Lord. Maybe you need to make your altar your seat. We'll pray that you would respond however the Lord leads. Maybe you need to respond and become a member here at Lindsay Lane North, what God's doing here. Whatever it is that you need to do, I pray that you would respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's drawing in your life and respond accordingly in this time of worship. Father, have your will and ruling way in our hearts and life. Lord, let us remove forcibly anything that is holding the throne of our life apart from you. And God, then let us as your people look like that, respond like that. I pray for the one that needs to respond to you for salvation. I pray for the one that needs to get their life back on track. I pray for the one that needs to rededicate. I pray for the one, Lord, that needs to join what, what God's doing here. God, I just pray that you would move and have your will in our hearts and lives in this moment. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Would you come?